Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The midterm elections are a little more than three weeks away. There are a number of Native candidates in local, state, and national races. There are both newcomers and incumbents on the ballots, and election watchers are calculating the chances to keep or increase Native representation. Some Native candidates are facing tight races after recent redistricting. Others are expected to sail into office. We'll get an overview of the elections from a Native standpoint, coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A Montana district court has struck down three election laws that could have created barriers to voting weeks before the midterm election. Eric Tigodoff has more. Two of those laws presented especially high hurdles to Native Americans in the state. That includes a law that got rid of Election Day voter registration and another that banned third-party ballot collection. Jacqueline DeLeon is staff attorney with the Native American Rights Fund, which represented plaintiffs in this case. She says Judge Michael Moses found evidence that the legislature intentionally discriminated against folks who rely on Election Day registration, such as indigenous communities and students. It's pretty disturbing that the legislature went ahead and passed these laws despite the known impacts on Native Americans. The lawsuit was brought by Western Native Voice and tribes in Montana, including the Blackfeet Nation and Northern Cheyenne Tribe. The third law struck down in the decision would have made it harder for students to register to vote by requiring them to use another form of identification in addition to their student ID. DeLeon says a court struck down a nearly identical ballot collection law in 2020 in Montana. She says many tribes don't have reliable residential mail delivery. They've really come to rely on organizations that go out in vehicles that can access the poor roads and can pay for gas and can travel significant distances to circumvent poor mail service to pick up ballots for Native Americans. DeLeon says it's important to note that these laws are discriminatory and also, on the flip side, that Native Americans are not asking for extra accommodations. They're not asking for more than what other Montanans are entitled to. What they're asking for is for equal access. And in the face of it being unequal, they're asking that the tools that they use to overcome those inequalities not be targeted and taken away. I'm Eric Tegadov. A settlement has reportedly been reached between the U.S. government and victims of former Indian Health Service doctor and convicted pedophile Stanley Weber. The Wall Street Journal reports the government will pay somewhere between $1 million to $2 million each to eight victims. The lawsuit against the government claims the Indian Health Service ignored or tolerated Weber's abuse. Weber worked for IHS for more than 20 years. The former pediatrician was convicted of raping and sexually assaulting boys that he treated in South Dakota and Montana. In 2020, at age 71, he was sentenced to a string of life sentences in prison. The settlement has not been finalized. A Native woman-owned business is now open on the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center's Business and Cultural District in Albuquerque, New Mexico. A ribbon-cutting ceremony was held this week for Itality Plant-Based Foods. The business focuses on culturally relevant Pueblo foods. Owner Tina Archuleta is a social entrepreneur, community doula, and chef. She says her life has always centered around wellness in Native communities. I started my business on foot years ago around Jemez, selling enchiladas, 
and um, that just developed and developed and developed into what we see here today. So it's been a long journey, maybe 16 years of trying and dreaming of this. So plant-based Pueblo food, it's um, culturally relevant food, food that we know and love, but made completely plant-based, no dairy, no eggs, no animal byproduct. Growing up in a remote area, Archuleta faced challenges being in a food desert with difficulty finding healthy food options. She started a catering business and delivered healthy foods to tribal communities and gas stations. Now her grab-and-go is a storefront on the plaza owned by the 19 Pueblos of New Mexico. The plaza includes two hotels, a handful of eateries, a bank, and is growing with a planned food co-op and other businesses. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com news. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Most election experts predict Oklahoma Chickasaw incumbent Republican Representative Tom Cole will likely keep his seat. His current colleague, Republican Cherokee Representative Mark Wayne Mullen, is giving up his seat in the House for a likely win in the Senate race. Many other national races with Native candidates are less certain. In Kansas, one of the first Native Congresswomen, Sharice Davids, who is Ho-Chunk, is facing a tight race against a GOP opponent. In Alaska, Yupik Representative Mary Peltola, who won the special election to replace the late Don Young, will have to face off again with Republican challenger Sarah Palin. Today, we're talking with political experts who will break down some of the races in the election in a little over three weeks. We'll take a look at where some Native candidates stand on the issues and what's at stake in November. We also want to hear from you. What Native candidates in this election are you following? What issues are important to you? Please join the conversation. Call 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. You can also leave a comment on our Facebook and Twitter pages. That Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. O.J. Seaman Sr. joins us from Rosebud Sioux, South Dakota. He is the co-executive director of the Native Voting Advocacy Organization, Four Directions. He is Rosebud Sue. OJ, welcome back to NAC. Well, thank you, Sean. As usual, it's always a pleasure to be here. And uh, you have a very good topic today. It's very exciting for midterms. Well, OJ, I think 
for you the the elections it's kind of like your super bowl you just you're always so geared up and you, you pay so much attention i i think it's just you're so passionate about it and it just comes across whenever you speak so of course the, the pleasure is ours as well to have you on the show and and oj let's get started i mean we're in the home stretch of what's shaping up to be some very tight races for native candidates in in some of these elections and uh we mentioned earlier one of whom is the well-known congresswoman from kansas sharice davids she was first elected in 2018, of course, a historic event that gave Native America its first two Native Congresswomen. But now, four years later, she's seriously at risk of losing her seat. Why is Sharice's campaign struggling? Oh, well, it's not Sharice's campaign. What, what happened is, is uh, we had the U.S. Census, and then we had redistricting. Uh, at the point where she won, it was like, a, as a Democrat, a plus two where, where she was basically had a walk-in. Uh, but now, uh, since the redistricting, it went Republican plus one. So she uh, is doing everything that she needs to do in her campaign. It's just that when they shift those numbers around where they, they put more of the opposing party uh, in, in the district you're running for, it just makes it that more difficult. Um, She's got an uphill battle, but, you know, I, I have confidence in uh, Sharice, and I have confidence in her campaign, and I have confidence in the good people of Kansas within her district to see that she is the woman to go for. Okay, so the redistricting is really, really impacting her her reelection chances. And do you know right now what, what the polls are looking like? Is she, how many points behind is she? Well, Actually, she's not that far behind. She's within the the margin of error. So I mean, they're they're still hoping. I you know, polls again, they're good, but lately a lot of people will get on the polls and tell you the exact opposite of what they're thinking. So I still think she has a fair chance of of keeping that seat. Okay, and uh, some of these other races around the country with native candidates. Which ones are you paying extra close attention to, OJ? Well. Uh, Really, I'm paying attention to, like, uh, uh, Representative uh, Palatola uh, out of Alaska. She's actually hit the ground running in Congress. I mean, she's went to both sides of the aisles, worked with both sides. Uh, you know, she's showing that she's there for the uh, good citizens of Alaska and not there for a party. So I think she has a very good chance of, of keeping this seat in the special or in, in this election. Uh, just a little time she's been in Congress. She's moved legislation uh, for Alaska Natives. Uh, you know, Rep Representative Young, who passed away and whose she, uh, seat she took uh, in a special election, a lot of the, the water he was carrying, she's picked up and, and continued to carry that. Uh, again, working on both sides of the aisle and doing a great job. So, I mean, that's really going to be interesting uh, to see how that goes. And, and honestly, we got like... 87 Native Americans and indigenous people that made it into the primaries throughout the United States, and a lot of them are for are for U.S. congressional seats. Uh, you know, we we have uh, uh, Mercedes Krause, who is in Nevada, uh, running for the U.S. House. And she's a, a, a Oglala Lakota. Now, how she got to Nevada, I don't know, but I do know <laughs> she is a great woman. <laughs> um, and, and That's she's a good going point. Against an incumbent. 
Yeah, yeah. And you well, you raise a good point because, you know, you see some of these native folks and, and um, you know, they're from maybe Oklahoma, they're from the South Dakota, North Dakota, and here they get, you know, become transplants in other parts of the country. So definitely exciting. Let's talk a little bit more about the Peltola Palin race because, um, I mean, it was just last month she made history. She was sworn in as the first Alaska Native member of Congress. She, like you said, she won that special election. And it just seems so so tough for her because here it is now she's facing this re-election like two months later and um you know of course sarah palin is you know such a huge huge figure amongst uh you know you know the right uh the right side of the aisle there and but it, it has been a relatively civil campaign compared to some of these other races around the country and what what do you think's driving that um, OJ, because, you know, one thing that we really have to, to talk about a little bit today is just how, um, you know, the animosity and the tone of some of these campaigns, especially leveled towards to some of these Native candidates of ours. Well, for, first of all, uh, 2020, or excuse me, 2016 basically changed politics throughout the United States. Uh, and, and to this day, we're still fighting uh, some of the false allegations that that have been uh, made, not only about you know the elections being fraudulent, but you know throwing in Native Americans whenever they get a chance. I mean, when Native Americans uh, uh, turn out at the polls, which we have done more and more, the more and more people can't uh, get it in their heads that uh, we're not going to go to jail to commit fraud for for some white person, uh, and for that matter, for another Native, but. The, the thing about it is it, it's really toxic out there. And one thing that Native candidates do throughout the United States, whether it's for the U.S. Congress or, US, or State House, State Senate, uh, you know, our, our culture and tradition has always made it so that we, we have been uh, – we're good listeners and that we are respectful. So – I, I think most Native Americans are going to tone down any type of rhetoric out there just by using, you know, what we were taught growing up, our culture and our tradition, and, and being honest. And so, uh, but don't get me wrong, it's out there. I mean, we we have people being trained uh, by the GOP to uh, go and make sure elections are honest, you know, and in any country that scares me because, you know, we we really look out for our elders and our youth and we don't want any type of situation that would uh, intimidate them uh, and keep them away from the polls. So, I mean, right now, I know tribes are, are working on election laws uh, that uh, would be culturally and traditionally enforced uh, in order to protect tribal members uh, during the election season. So, okay. um, OJ, what is that? What what does that mean culturally and traditionally enforced? How how does that work in in an election? Well, actually, most tribes have is called an exclusionary law, uh, which is a civil law that the tribes can use to remove members, even tribal members or non-members, from the reservation uh, under the civil law and uh, escort them off. And so. If they don't escort them off the reservation, they can escort them off the uh, the polling place, and and basically uh, for doing any type of uh, intimidation. I mean, you know, a lot of people what they'll do is they'll go there and take pictures of the elders as they're trying to go in, and and you know that's that's not acceptable here. Uh, 
um, right. at least on Rosebud and other places. And, and so incidents like that, the person would be, be and, the, and, and that can be a force using the uh, tribal police or the Bureau of Indian Affairs police uh, in, in order to stop that type of intimidation. OJ, another interesting development there in Alaska is this whole ranked choice voting that's been introduced. And um, some people, you know, are suggesting that that's the reason that Mary Peltola is favored over Sarah Palin. And what's your thought on that and this ranked choice voting? And do you think we'll see that in other states in the years going forward? You know, I think we will. And, and actually, it does work pretty well. Um and there, there are other states that already have it, and I think we'll have more states that are going to do it. But when, when you're talking about Representative uh, uh, Pelotoa, you know, one of the other things, if you kind of check, you know, Google her, the one you see giving her a big hug and, and when she gets to Congress is uh, Senator Mikowski. Uh, so if that isn't an endorsement, I don't think uh, uh, there's such a thing as a great endorsement then because that was really cool how – uh, she went, went up, approached her, and gave her a big hug. So, I mean, um, I I think uh, you'll see more of that. Well, we're talking about the upcoming midterm election here on Native America Calling today. It's just three weeks away, and we're getting updates. We're getting reports from all over Native America with indigenous candidates who are running in local and regional national elections. So if you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you'd like to chime in on our election show today, 1-800-996-2848. That is the number to call, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with O.J. Seaman Sr., and he is the executive director of the Native Voting Advocacy Organization for Directions. And we've got another guest that we're going to talk to shortly as well. But before we do that, we do have to take a short break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. A new TV show for preschoolers just debuted on Netflix. It features a native cast and storyline and offers insights into Cowlitz culture and language. We'll review the show and find out what its creators and actors hope to get across to their audience. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are taking a look at this year's midterm election and the Native candidates on the ballot. We want to hear from you. 
for what races are you following? What native candidates are you following? Join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And if you'd like to check out our Native Candidate Guide, you can go to our website, nativeamericacalling.com, and check out our homepage. We have a link there, and you can take a look at some of these Native candidates that are currently on ballots throughout Indian country. So we encourage you to take a look at that. Jordan James Harville is the National Program Director for Advanced Native Political Leadership. He is Cherokee and Choctaw. Jordan, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. Um, thanks for having this really important conversation. Absolutely. And uh, Jordan, earlier we heard OJ talking about um, some of these Native folks. For example, there in Nevada, we have Mercedes Krause, who is Lakota, but she's a, a transplant. She's there in Nevada. And she's in an interesting race. Tell us more. What's at stake there for Native voters in it in Nevada? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So Mercedes uh, Krauss actually went through the Native Leadership Institute, which is a program that we have here at Advanced Native Political Leadership to recruit and train uh, Native leaders to run for office. And she really set out on this um, to uh, try to engage tribes and, and Native voters and build power within the, the northern part of Nevada. It's the highest concentration of tribes in the entire state. Um, and so as she's moving through this, she's really bringing forward all of the voices of tribal members, of Native voters that have been really silenced in a, a district that, and in a be in a district that has a representative that has not really paid much attention to Native voters. Um, so I think it's a real opportunity uh, for us to kind of build some power, um, for us to put a stake in the ground as Native voters and say that we're here um, and that um, our representatives have the voice and the, the life experience to kind of carry us forward. So that district has the highest density of, of tribal nations in Nevada. So Sounds like the native vote could really swing that election if if voters come out to the polls. I think it could. And I think, you know, Mercedes has done an incredible job of engaging the tribes um, and doing everything that she can to center native issues in the race. And so regardless of whether she prevails or not, we've put this stake in the ground and Emma Day, who is the representative there, has to listen to native issues. Um, she was just in a debate forum um, just last week um, and talking about things like MMIP and um, talking about the needs of tribal members, like, um, you know, being able to access um, job opportunities and educational opportunities being seen in our in our uh, in our curriculum. Um, so I think it's a real mobilizing moment uh, for Northern Nevada um, tribal members. And and how do the polls look right now for Mercedes? You know, there's not many polls that um, are are kind of launched in races like this. Um, in general, um, she's facing a bit of an uphill battle. Um, this district has been historically held by a Republican. Um, and so she's really, um, you know, starting us off on a campaign um, to mobilize Native voters and to try to change that reality for the district. Um, I think that she is going to have an uphill battle, but that's the hard work that has to be done over several years and the deep investment that needs to be made in our community. And so she was willing to put her hat in and, and to, to carry us forward. Jordan, you met, you touched briefly on some of Mercedes' uh some of her platform points there. And, and I want to ask you just to expand on that. And what are some key issues that Native voters really need to be paying attention to this year? 
I think one key piece um, and some, something that Mercedes talks about, about a lot is um, educational equity. Um, so Mercedes is a teacher um, and has been really active with the um, National Education Association, her labor union. Um, and she's been a voice at the state capitol on um, education equity issues and being seen in our curriculum. You know, we've seen uh, CRT reach a fever pitch um, in the last year or two. And I think that Mercedes has really centered um, our ability to see ourselves within our own curriculum and in our classrooms as part of her race. The other piece is inflation. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, many of our tribal members, these are rural areas. Um, these are places that don't always have the same economic opportunities as other parts of the state. And Mercedes is, you know, really championing what it looks like for us to bring more job opportunities, uh, for us to create opportunities to, you know, to help, uh, you know, everyday Nevadans get through their days. Um, and so that's a really key piece of our platform. She's talking a lot about inflation um, and talking a lot about how it's going to impact uh, the native voters there. And there's some really specific issues, I think, in Nevada um, that, that she wants to tackle on that front. Jordan, let's talk more about another candidate that has, has uh, moved to a different state. We've got Yvette Harrell, who is an enrolled uh, Cherokee Nation member who lives in, in southern New Mexico, of all places, so a little bit off the beaten path for, for a Cherokee person. But she's the conservative incumbent there in her district, and she's also in a tight contest. What does Yvette need to do to keep her seat? It's a tough one. Um, here at Advance, what we're really focused on is um, values-aligned Indigenous leaders. And so what that means to us is looking at um, one is, you know, protecting bodily autonomy, protecting tribal sovereignty, um, caring for the environment, um, and, and pieces like this. And so um, we've really focused on races up to this point that um, that support candidates that are kind of doing that piece. I think Yvette Harrell holds a really specific role because our Republican members of the House um, are, are what allowed Indian country to work across the aisle. Um, but saying that, I think that for her, What's really going to be important is is turnout, and I think this is like something we're hearing across the nation. Um, you know, in 2018, um, we had the highest turnout in a midterm cycle in four decades, um, and so she really needs to think about what it is to to mobilize Native voters in her in her district and her um, and her voters more broadly. Okay, well, let's talk about that a little bit more. And, and, and um, it is important to note that. Um, Yvette Harrell, she doesn't talk publicly about her native identity. And, um, you know, there are some other, you know, pretty strong right-leaning candidates, native candidates uh, in these midterms. And, and Jordan, I'd like to, to hear more of your take on that. For instance, we have Mark Wayne Mullen running for Senate in Oklahoma, and he's an ultra right-wing Republican, checkered reputation, and he's got a pretty strong lead in the poll. So I, I want to ask you, I mean, what's at stake there for Oklahoma's Native voters and other Native voters uh, around the country with, with some of these uh, Native candidates that, um, that don't lean to the left? I think quite simply, it's tribal sovereignty. Um, in Oklahoma, we've seen something quite unprecedented in that there has been a significant number of conservative um, Native representatives running for office on platforms that are overturning McGirt, um, that are pushing um, uh, uh, policing and law enforcement from tribes back to the state um, and really supporting kind of the lead that Governor Stitt has has led here in the state on on really fighting with the tribes. And I think this is something that we should be concerned about in general in Indian country. It's important for us to be thinking about how do we protect tribal sovereignty long term. Um, and so 
as I'm looking at, at the cost of these races, it's not just Mark Wayne Mullen. Um, I'm thinking about all of the representatives who are running and kind of uh, leaving tribes behind in this process. Traditionally, tribes have really played this middle ground in America of kind of working between Republicans and Democratic parties as groups that don't fully represent us on either side. Um, but we work together to get things done and to protect our people um, as sovereign nations. And so this kind of change in Oklahoma is is a challenge, right? Like, what does that mean for us in, in the next decade in terms of our self-determination period? Are we going to continue um, seeing wins like McGurt, or are we going to have increasing pressures from our own representatives um, in, in kind of disregarding tribal sovereignty? OJ, I'd like you to chime in on this as well, because also in Oklahoma, um, you have uh, Republican Governor Kevin Stitt, who is Cherokee, but um, he's faced a lot of backlash from the tribes. In fact, Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. of Cherokee Nation has described him as the most anti-tribal sovereign gov tribal sovereignty governor in the history of the state of Oklahoma. OJ, what's your take on, on, on some of these right-leaning Native candidates in Oklahoma and other parts of the country? Well, I, I think basically because of the stance they're taking that, that are harmful to tribal sovereignty and, and tribes and tribal members is they're going to find that a lot of people will start changing from uh, a, a right-leaning uh, candidate to somebody that is, is going to look at their, their uh, issues. Uh, that's one of the main things that tribes actually and tribal members participate in is issues. So I think you're going to see a lot of people switching parties here uh, in Oklahoma if, if this trend continues. And they may be getting uh, a lot tougher races uh, in the future if they continue to ignore tribal issues in Oklahoma. OJ, I want to ask you the same question I asked uh, Jordan earlier. What are some key issues that, that you think Native voters should be paying special attention to this midterm? Well, you know, the main one I see that, that is a threat right now, uh, and, and it's kind of like uh, saying the sky is falling because it hasn't went through the Supreme Court yet, is but the Indian Child Welfare Act. I mean, that, that has been challenged for years and years and years, and we've always been able to maintain uh, that is it is a constitutional right that we have. Uh, but with the new Supreme Court we have, we're kind of, you know, wondering what what the outcome is going to be, because a lot of things that were set in stone years ago through the Supreme Court have already been overturned. And so that is one of the main issues that uh, actually when we have candidate forms, that is the first issue we ask any U.S. House representative candidate uh, is if they would work with tribes if that was overturned in the Supreme Court to correct it. So ICWA, I think, is going to be a, a major deal uh, coming up in, uh, after the midterms. OJ, I'm glad you mentioned um, these candidate forms, because I understand you have another one coming up here just in, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we do. We uh, actually, uh, Four Directions, the uh, Wisconsin Tribal Nations, and, and uh, NARF, uh, Native American Rights Fund, National Congress of American Indians, uh, we are having a Native American candidate form uh, in Madison, Wisconsin on October 24th. Uh, all the Wisconsin tribes will be there, plus other tribal leaders from out the United States. Uh, and we're going to get the uh, the uh, U.S. Senate candidate there before tribal leaders uh, and members. We're going to get the governor there. We're going to get the attorney general there. We're going to get the secretary of state there. 
And it, so it's going to be a, a good forum. And, and what's so key about this is that they're going to talk about tribal issues, not general, you know, I'm going to do this, that. They are specifically going to be asked questions about tribal issues. And it's an educational part on, on both the tribal leaders and members and the candidates in which they're able to learn from each other, like what the office can do or can't do. And then the office and the candidate learning what tribes really need uh, to sustain their, their, their sovereignty, their tradition, uh, and, and, and move forward. I mean, I, I keep saying the, the Native vote is what we use to protect our sovereignty, our culture, and our traditions. And, you know, you got to go to the polls. And, and the one way to do it is to make sure that people are informed. And if I get, just jump off the subject one minute, the the population in Rap City, the native population in South Dakota, we consider it the third largest Indian reservation because of the natives that live there. But we also did a survey. We found out that over 200 tribes are represented by tribal members in Rapid City. And we have seen that over the course of our work where we have natives that are from, uh, you know, the Navajo Nation, Rosebud Sioux Tribe, Oglala, living in Nevada, living in Georgia. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because just because you're in South Dakota doesn't mean you can't have an effective election in Georgia, in Nevada, because you can call your relatives. And I really think that's important. I, 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 yeah. I thank you for letting me jump off the, the okay. line there a little bit. Okay. Well, yeah, and OJ, you make a really good point how, how homogenous Native America has become with, with people just living all over the country. And um, interesting, interesting how we have continued to evolve as Native people in, in terms of where we live and, and how we choose to vote. And Let's go back to Iqua and Jordan. I want to get your take on this as well, because I'm interested to learn, you know, how these Native candidates for, for House and Senate seats, how can they impact issues like Iqua, which is something that's that's ultimately decided in the courts? Yeah, thank you for that. I think um, we're thinking a lot about Iqua as this new Supreme Court uh, session gets started. I think you know, as we're looking out at tribal sovereignty more broadly, ICWA is, is one major pillar in what is coming um, in this court. And I think what that means for us is that um, two things is that as you start thinking about Congress more specifically, we need to have a strong enough block um, of uh, Native Congress members uh, to be able to bring these voices uh, their voices to the table and to be able to pass legislation to overturn the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court at the end of the day just makes a decision based on the current law, right? And so what we're really focused on is how do you, how do you then introduce legislation uh, that can overturn that law? That is the power of Congress. But I think the more important and the more interesting work is happening at the state level. And I think that is really where these protections can really come into play. You know, there's certain states in which um, Native candidates actually hold a, a, a sizable caucus um, in places like Minnesota, Montana, um, New Mexico, right? Um, and so what does it look like to actually mobilize these legislators around protecting the tribes within their states as well and getting more folks into those state houses. Okay, Jordan, another thing I, I want to talk about are, you know, we still have all these issues with, uh, you know, folks claiming that the 2020 presidential election, it was stolen, it was rigged. And, um, 
you know, beyond all credible evidence, there are just still a, a large number of candidates in these midterms that are they're doubling down on on that take that the election was stolen. And um, how, how is that going to impact the native vote, do you think, going forward? I think the biggest worry about this is not so much, you know, whether there's voter fraud or not, because that that doesn't actually exist, right? I think the bigger concern here is, is uh, the wave of election administrators that are running for office that think that suppressing a democratic vote is, is okay, right? And that they can get away with that. And so particularly when I think about places like Arizona um, that were deciding factors in the 2020 election, I think about people like Gabriela Saras Kelly, who um, is Tona Otom and ran for Pima County Recorder in the south of Arizona, um, and did so because she started her work as, you know, doing voter registration in her community and engaging her members, and then realized that the county recorder was doing zero investment into the Native community in that place. And so she ran, and she won, um, and she out-fundraised every other candidate by a significant margin. And she took her seat at the table and now gets to have conversations and hold accountable the Secretary of State, um, other election administrators, and have these larger conversations in our community. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, what I'm mostly worried about is what happens when election deniers become elected to election administration positions and then try to bring that type of um, energy to, uh, to Native voting. And so I'm really just focused on voter protection, I think, in that sense, and making sure these folks don't win in the first place. Folks, we are going to have to take another short break here, but if you want to get in on this conversation, you know the number. I'll tell you again. Anyways, 1-800-996-2848. Let us hear your take, what you think of the midterms coming up here in just three weeks. Our producers are standing by. We're waiting for your call. So what are you waiting for? 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back right after this break. Early voting has started, but with possible changes in district lines and state election laws, it's more important than ever to know how, when, and where to vote. That's why AARP created state-specific election guides where you can find up-to-date information about how to register, where to vote, the rules for early voting, and key deadlines. You don't have to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to get in on our conversation about Native candidates today in this upcoming midterm election. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Our guests today are O.J. Seaman Sr. He is with the Four Directions. Uh, it's a Native voting advocacy organization. And we have Jordan James Harville, who is the National Program Director for Advanced Native Political Leadership. And Jordan... Another issue I want to talk about here going forward, and, um, you know, I was chatting with my show producers earlier this week when we were planning this show, and, you know, it, here just two years ago, we had six Indigenous candidates elected to the U.S. House, six. It was historic. And then, of course, when Deb Holland, uh, you know, became uh, Secretary of the Interior, that went down to five, and then we had... Uh, one congressperson in, in Hawaii that chose not to run and, and is instead going after the governor's seat in Hawaii. And then we've got in Oklahoma, we've got Mark Wayne Mullen, who's going towards the Senate. And um, we also had two indigenous candidates that ran in a Republican primary and both lost. So, I mean, we're now at risk of, of losing 
all of these seats that that was such a, a win for Native America two years ago. Um, what does this mean in the big picture, Jordan? Yeah, I think that I, I want us to zoom out a little bit because it can feel scary when we take a look at very specific races. And, and there are very important races like Congresswoman Sharice Davids um, that are happening right now. But to kind of back up and to look at what the timeline since 2018 has looked like for Native candidates. Um, here at Advance, we track um, Native candidates who are running all the all up and down ballots. And this year, we have a record number of candidates running for offices in the primary. 142 candidates are running. In 2020, we had it 115. That's 122% growth in Native candidates running overall. And 75% of them won their primaries and advanced on. Um, so we have well over 100 candidates that are running for office, half of which are incumbents and need to be protected, but half of which are new candidates. One in two of these candidates are actually running for office for the very first time. And so we're actually breaking barriers all across. And many of these races look incredible for us. I think, you know, I think of kind of the 55 tribes that are being represented this cycle, um, seven LGBT plus or two-spirit representatives who are running, um, who are really incredible and, and breaking barriers in their respective places. Um, so when we think about these, um, you know, kind of the challenges ahead of us, I think that we have to look at the undercurrent that's happening in Indian country. And our people are ready for leadership and they are stepping up at levels that we have never seen before. Um, so I'm really hopeful, I think, as we look out at, at this general election as to what's going to look like on the other side. OJ, let me get your thoughts on that. So as, as Jordan suggests, even if we potentially lose some seats in, in the House this midterm, the future for Native candidates in the political spectrum, is it bright? Yeah, I, I believe so. I, I think we got more and more uh, Natives that are interested in uh, making decisions that affect Indian country and know that they can do so in either Congress or in the state. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you one race that uh, I'll, I'll zoom to is Lynette Grable. Now, that's going to be interesting because uh, that's where uh, the incumbent uh, House seat for life me, I can't remember her name now, it, uh, was voted out. Uh, they got somebody from the right there. Uh, and so I'm wondering whether those people uh, – that voted for the incumbent and she lost are going to turn and put their votes towards uh, Grable. Um, it, it's uh, going to be very interesting. And I, I actually plan on watching that one to uh, see how that's going to turn out. But I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking Grable in Wyoming has a uh, real good chance at the U S house seat. And again, that's just my, my, my own thought process, not, not polling. And that's Liz Cheney there in Wyoming that you're referring to, OJ? You got it. I, yeah, it, it, for life <laughs> me, sometimes a name okay. just won't come until 10 miles down the road. And, <laughs> so thank okay. You. okay, no worries. Yeah, and Harriet Hagman is the GOP candidate who uh, beat Cheney in the incumbent. So, yeah, interesting stuff going on. And, um, well, Jordan, I mean, you know, we've been talking about Sharice Davids and Mary Peltola and Yvette Harrell and some of these candidates in Oklahoma. And who are some other Native candidates that, that we haven't talked about yet and we need to talk about today? I'm so happy you asked. I think 
as I look out at the field, we have about six or seven states in which we're really incredibly excited about. I think um, one one that I think about is um, in Minnesota, we have Lieutenant Governor uh, Peggy Flanagan, who's running for re-election with Governor Waltz, um, who's a co-founder of our organization, uh, but an incredible leader and the highest elected leader in the nation. Um, she's running for re-election, which I think gives us a lot of hope there. Um, but down ballot in Minnesota, Alicia um, Kozlowski is running for the Minnesota State House District 8B. Um, and she's one of the first two-spirit representatives to run in these seats. Um, she's running a very powerful campaign in a competitive district. Um, and so we look forward to kind of seeing her succeed victorious. Um, she has she has endorsements from Advance. Uh, she has a, a endorsements from Victory Fund. Um, she has a powerful campaign team. And so um, putting her in office, I think, will be a huge win for Indian country. I also think about in Utah, Davina Smith um, running for Utah State House District 69. Um, so this is a district that after redistricting now includes San Juan County, Utah, which has over a 50% native population. And many folks in Indian country know this particular district because um, for several decades, um, the district was had such heavy voter suppression for the northern part of the Navajo Nation um, that of that 50%, they were still electing two out of three three commissioners as native, um, as, as white commissioners, um, and using that power to suppress the vote. So this has been a decades-long fight in San Juan County, Utah, for to be able to have that representation on the commissions, and now they might have it in the state house. And so I think that's really incredible that we might see a Diné person in the Utah um, state house. I also think about North Dakota. Um, so Representative Ruth Buffalo, many folks know her, she has a national profile, uh, is running a really competitive race at the moment. She's running an uphill battle. Um, her district leans five points uh, Republican and during redistricting, she lost two of her critical support um, precincts, but she works every single day. And for folks who are following her on social media, they see that she knocks doors every single day. She's out there in the community and she's really a model for what native candidates should be and what the power building approach looks like. I'll name one other um, or one other set of races is that um, also in North Dakota, just above OJ, um, they're in District 4 and in District 9 of the State House. Um, these are districts that are under federal lawsuit for violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and that's because they have uh, split these districts between 4A and 4B. Traditionally, North Dakota districts have two representatives in them. They've split the district, so it's one candidate running in each. And they did this to basically push all of um, the native voters into District 4A and District 9A, um, and then open up seats for 9B and uh, 4B. Um, and so this is both kind of a long-term battle for the Voting Rights Act and kind of what that looks like in the protecting and preserving Section 2, but it's also a moment in which native tribes are actually directly under attack by the state um, under redistricting. And so I will be watching those races very quickly. That's Liz, um, Lisa Finley DeVille and Jamie Davis running in those seats. I'll be watching those really quickly, um, really closely, because winning in those seats means a massive victory for Indian country, but also starts a larger conversation about protecting our voting rights long term. Jordan, you, you touched on the Southwest earlier, and uh, let's remind our listeners that the Navajo Nation, with its huge, huge population, was a big player in the 2020 election. And what does that look like this year in Arizona? Will the Navajo Nation vote um, be a major factor in how things go? There has been a really sustained amount of power building in Arizona since 2020. I think, you know, prior, we didn't have quite the 
the political infrastructure that um, we did in other states. And so that has really changed. Um, in 2020, we saw 130% in the three counties that overlap the Navajo Nation in the north. Um, Coconino, uh, Navajo, and Apache County, we saw 130% of their 2016 turnout, um, which is a high watermark. And I think that although it probably won't be as high in a non-presidential year, um, what, what we know on the ground is that there is a massive investment in the Navajo Nation and all of those organizers that were there in 2020 are still there in 2022, building that political infrastructure, launching new C3s and C4 organizations to kind of sustain that power building long term. So I am very hopeful, despite there being kind of a... a a deluge of uh, legislation that has come down in the Arizona State House to try to um, kind of attack that vote. Jordan, what about Hawaii? Are you watching the elections there? Because I, I know there's at least one native Hawaiian running for Congress. We are lately. I think um, it's exciting because, you know, this is the first moment in which we have uh, Alaska Native, uh, Native Hawaiian and Native American um, as kind of like the broad three indigenous groups in Americas um, represented in Congress. And so I think kind of keeping that up is going to be really critical this year as well. OJ, I'd like to get your take on the Navajo vote as well. How large a factor do you think uh, the Navajo Nation vote will be there in the Arizona midterms? Oh, I think it's going to uh, be key to any any person that is going to actually win that office. Uh, one thing, these races are so close in all the states where Indian countries uh, uh, has uh, a presence. These votes could, uh, an election could be won by a few hundred votes. Um, and so, you know, it, it's really key uh, for, for people to participate. Um, I, I know um, uh, Jordan just talked about North Dakota, but we just got done working with the uh, uh, Shoshone Paiute Duck Valley uh, Reservation uh, in filing a, a voting rights lawsuit under state court for violating their rights. Uh, in, in Nevada, uh, if a tribe requests a satellite office on the reservation, they're supposed to give it. And what they did is they only gave the tribal members there uh, four hours and and their election are four hour two days four hours each so on Friday their election's over and and so a lawsuit was filed to uh, uh, increase it because the Elk, Elko County is in that county is the richest county per cap and if you live in Elko you get 120 hours in election day voting so um, you know, the, there is things out there to stop, and, and I can tell you the Nevada race is probably going to end up by whoever wins by hundreds of votes, not thousands. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see that all through the United States where Indian country is involved of these very close races uh, being decided by, by Native Americans. And I also point out 99.9% .9 of the time when a polar calls, it's not a person that has an Indian name like Grey Bull, uh, you know, it, it, and, and so natives are never even included in polling, and that's why we can really make a difference in any election, especially midterm, of deciding which candidate is going to go to office. Okay. Well, we've got a caller on the line right now, Lynette, listening in Anchorage, Alaska on KNBA. Lynette, thanks for calling in today. Good morning, Sean. Thank you for taking my call. And 
I'm calling from Anchorage, Alaska. In the past, I ran for the U.S. Congress seat against the late um, Congressman Don Young, but I didn't make the primary, and I am so proud of Mary Petrola for winning the seat, even though it's temporary. I'm really hoping that she could win in our general election so that she could represent Alaska Native people, although I don't agree with her on a couple things, but that's besides the point. And I would like to just say that she is very brave and very strong, and my hat is off to her. Thanks for calling in, Lynette. Appreciate your take on Mary Peltola coming up for her re-election here in just three weeks. And we're going to have to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. But Jordan, one more topic I do want to touch on is voting access. And, um, you know, we've, we've mentioned that briefly here on the show already. But uh, where in Native America do we need to really be paying close attention to some of these voter access issues? We've been talking about Arizona and the governor's race there is very close. And, and you have a GOP candidate there who is an election denier. So where, do, where, do the, where does the Native vote really need to be concerned with voter access going forward? It's an incredibly important question and a large one. I think, you know, one of the interesting demographic shifts that are happening across the nation right now is, is that as you look off into rural areas, about 30% of our population Native uh, voters uh, live in rural or right around or on tribal lands. Um, and these are really critical voting blocks in most, uh, in red states particularly. Um, and so when we think about that, they're, they're actually electing on the edges of our tribal lands, um, election denying uh, election administrators um, to these seats that will then be presiding over where our polling places go, whether the poll workers are actually trained on whether a tribal ID is accepted or not. Um, and so when I think about that, it's really at the edge of er every rule or non-rural um, uh, piece of Indian country in these red states. So that's places like Arizona, it's places like Nevada, New Mexico and the Northern pieces and Southern. Um, when we think about that, um, I'm actually very worried about kind of just the very basic mechanics of election administration in those places. Um, so that's where I would be looking out to, um, pretty much at the edge of all of these tribal lands. Um, I think in addition to that, we have to be watching what's happening right now in the Supreme Court, along with ICWA, there will also be hearing um, a set of cases around Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And this is really this is really the teeth of the Voting Rights Act that focuses on um, kind of a racial calculator in terms of when we're redistricting or when we're uh, making key election decisions, how do we take into uh, consideration the impact on different racial groups? Um, and dilution of Section 2 um, is really a bad thing for Indian country. And so making sure our voices heard over this entire Supreme Court session and with our Congress members is also going to be very critical for long-term voter access. Well, listeners, we do encourage you to check out our Native Candidate Guide. If you go on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, and educate yourselves, learn for yourselves. What we do on this show is try and give you balanced perspectives of Native American issues, but we leave it to you to take that next step and inform yourselves to become diligent voters. We've reached the end of the hour. I'd like to th say thank you to our guests, O.J. Seaman Sr. and Jordan James Harville for insights and updates from the 2022 campaign trail. Join us tomorrow as we talk to the creators of the new Netflix child series, Spirit Rangers. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities.
For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.